0: Our sermon this morning is found in Luke chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 37. Luke 6, and verse 37. You'll find that on page 863 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And by all means, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we invite you to take that Bible in the Pew rack. It is our gift to you. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Hear now the Word of God. Judge not. And you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Our Father, we're thankful now that we can come and and sit under your word. We're thankful, Father, for the teaching of Jesus Christ that we consider. We ask that you would help us. Father, at times I feel like we are hemmed in here with all of the triflings of this world and and the, the busyness of our schedules. Father, um, the struggles we have with sin. And, and, Father, we're so hemmed in that at times we fail to see your majesty your glory. And so your people gather here today, Father, as we do every Sunday, precisely because we want to see our God. We want to fall in love with him. We want to, as we've been reminded, become more desperate for him. And so, Father, we pray even to you now that you will help us. Help us see the glory in this truth we consider today. Help us to see the blessings that would come upon us if we would simply obey. And Father, we especially pray for this, our nation. As we remember, 239 years ago, America began. And Father, we as your people are troubled. We love this land, and we're thankful for it but we are troubled by the direction it's going. And so we pray for those who would lead us and ask that you give them abundant wisdom and guidance. We ask that you would allow our kings to bow their knee to the King of kings. And we pray for your people, even in the midst of growing sinfulness, that we would be faithful, knowing that the stars shine brightest in the darkest sky. Help us to shine faithfully as your lights to this world, as your lights to this nation. We pray in Christ's name, amen. The ancient king of Edessa, Agbar V, claimed to have a letter written to him by Jesus Christ. He was sick, even uh, uh, almost to the point of death. And so he heard of Jesus and he sent for help. Jesus evidently wrote a letter back to him saying he would like to come but can't fit it into his schedule. But he sent a disciple with him who happened to heal him, or so the legend goes. It was years, centuries after this letter was written that it was proved to be, of course, a forgery. Another famous forgery, one that caused much more damage, is called the Donation of Constantine. The, Constantine was the first Christian emperor of Rome in the early 4th century, and he reportedly wrote a letter to the Bishop of Rome, granting the Bishop of Rome the right to rule over all of Christianity, hence establishing the office of the Pope. It was influential for over a thousand years, in fact, until the 16th century, when it too was proved to be a forgery. Uh, other relics exist in the church, Maybe a highly valued martyr's bone, or the clothing of a church father, or an apostle's spoon. These are said to have physical and spiritual power that people still, even to this day, try to get near these relics, these artifacts to touch them, that they might receive some kind of blessing, often healing. So people will, will um, have these pilgrimages to these artifacts to find these things that much, once were close to a very holy man that they might receive a blessing. The most famous relic uh, in church history would have to be the cross of christ it was reportedly discovered by helena constantine's mother in 320 a.d she was guided the story goes by a jewish woman who had information passed down for three centuries and she guided her to a spot and they began to dig and lo and behold they found a cross buried and there on the cross was an inscription written in three languages the king of the jews and so helena promptly broke it into pieces she left one piece there in Jerusalem. You can visit it to this day. It is called. The, they started a church there. It's called the Church of the True Cross. And then she sent the fragments through, throughout Europe, throughout the empire. And it kept getting divided. And at one point in church history, it almost seemed like every church had a piece of the true cross of Christ. Until the 1500s when the Reformation began. And Calvin, I think, rightly calculated that there was enough wood now from the true cross of Christ to form a fleet of ships. These forgeries um, have done great damage and continue to do so. But perhaps the most deadly forgery, the greatest religious forgery, is that of false teachers, phony Christians. In fact, there are 27 books in the New Testament, 25 of them warn you and I against those who would teach heresy, would teach wrong doctrine. For instance, when Paul was visiting with the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone. You know what Paul's saying is, you don't understand how important this is. I spent three years with you admonishing you night and day to be ready, to be prepared, that you might shepherd your people faithfully. The Great damage is done by these religious forgeries. And I think that's what Jesus wants to refer to here in this sermon on the plain. We've been considering this message now for four weeks in our study of Luke's Gospel. God willing, we'll consider it one more time and finish the sermon uh, next time we meet. But Jesus has called these people together, remember, and he says, okay, you guys want to be my disciples, that's great, I, that's wonderful, but I, you need to understand, if you want to be, this is how you're supposed to live. In other words, this is what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like, and if you live within the kingdom of God, this is how you're supposed to act. And he says well, you're not supposed to value what, what the world values, and money, and comfort, and security, and acclaim. And he says that, that if you're my disciple, your relationships with other people are going to become transformed. Even your relationships, as we saw last week, with your enemies... In fact, I'm calling you to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and and, uh, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And so Jesus encourages us to do these things exactly what he does and his Father does. And sometimes our enemies are easy to spot. There are those who hurt us and, and those who harm us or those who oppose us. But sometimes our enemies are more subtle. As he warned to the the elders in Ephesus, sometimes they are wolves, but they are dressed up in sheep's clothing. Sometimes they're hard to spot. Sometimes the enemy is even us, it's even ourselves that we would even do damage to ourselves unknowingly. And so it's in this part of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain that he begins to explain how is it we're supposed to discern these things? How are we supposed to make these judgments? And I think we can really see three types of judgments in which Jesus instructs us. He begins by telling us how to judge others, and then he moves on to say how to judge your leaders, and then finally, how to judge yourselves. And so let's first consider how to judge others. If you're keeping time this morning, by the way, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on this point, so don't get worried if we go long here, okay? We'll speed up on the last two points. But I think this is particularly interesting to me, especially in light of how much our country seems to love this verse. Note verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, I don't know if you have the similar experiences that I do, but I, I have run into people who do not know a single verse in the Bible except this one, right? And and whenever they feel the slightest sense of displeasure, out comes the King James, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged, they shall tell you. And so this is kind of their defense mechanism to knock down any disproval that might be coming their way. And they consider, as many do in America, that judging others is the most heinous sin that we can commit in this land. The reason is a couple. We have two kind of basic uh, premises in our culture. Number one, that religion is private. And so you need to keep your religion yourself. We see this even increasing more and more these days. And the second is that, uh, morality is relative. So what may be wrong for you, it may be right for me or vice versa. So how hard is it that you're going to tell me what I'm doing is wrong? And so we, we like to set our own standard. And then usually we adjust it as we fail, even our own standard along the way. And so they will say, well, you can't judge me. In fact, even Jesus says you can't judge me. But I would suggest to you that you, you and I can't, can't really Uh, Live in this world or any world for that matter without making judgments. Right? I mean, we have to judge. And we have people do it all the time. We have judges, right? And they make judgments. They judge a thief or abuser or something. They are judging certain people. In fact, even when someone comes to you and says, Judge not, lest ye be judged, you know what they're doing? They're judging. You're judging my judging. Right? And so you can say right back to him, judge not, lest you be judged. Right? And then you go back and forth. That probably won't be profitable. Well, but the point is, is that even by claiming that you shouldn't judge me, you're judging me that I'm judging you. And so we can't exist without making these judgments. There's no way to do that. In fact, it's not good to do so. There was a, the church in Corinth, remember them? And and there was a man who was uh, having an illicit uh, sexual relationship with his stepmother. And the church was doing what? Nothing. You know what they're doing? They weren't judging. Was that good? No, Paul writes to the church and says, you're so arrogant that you think God will continue to bless you, pour out his blessings upon you. When you have this type of sin within your church, you need to call for this man to repent. And if he does not, you need to kick him out of the church. You need to excommunicate him. And so that judgment is is important. In fact, Jesus does this all the time. When Jesus says, judge not, he can't be saying, don't ever tell anybody they're wrong, because Jesus is constantly telling people they're wrong. In fact, just in verse 42, he's going to call people hypocrites. Do you notice that? And so if you summarize this teaching, he would be saying, judge not, you hypocrites. And you would think, well, wait a second, aren't you judging? Well, certainly he's rendering a verdict. Jesus will do this over and over again. And, and so therefore, I would conclude that he's not calling us not to make judgments, He's not calling us for it to be naive. He's not calling for us to not be able to discern between good and evil. Judgment must happen. So what then does he mean when he says judge not? Well, I think there's really two types of judging. One is this evaluation or this discernment we just spoke of. But the other type of judging is more of a condemning. It's more of a judgmental attitude. And so when Jesus says in verse 37, judge not, I think he's saying don't be condemning. Don't be judgmental. That is, don't live your life as a judge. Don't go around constantly evaluating people, looking for errors, looking for things to complain about, looking for faults, looking at people and sizing them up. And and just by looking at them or speaking to them, you know all about them and you know what type of person they are. And oftentimes people have this attitude. They actually rejoice in this judgmental heart they find great delight in it and he's saying don't have a judgmental heart which flows of course from arrogance remember we're supposed to be poor in spirit we're supposed to be humble in our heart and Jesus therefore calls us not not to have a judgmental attitude towards each other I think that's incredibly important for us to understand because the reality is I've shared many times with you is that I sin I do I wish I didn't sometimes I'm short with my children Sometimes I'm unkind in my heart or ungrateful in my mind. Sometimes I love money and things too much. And really, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I struggle with sin. And my, my guess is there's probably some of you that also struggle with sin. And if you struggle with sin and I struggle with sin, how are you and I going to live in a community called the kingdom of God or the church of God if we're all, all going to be walking around with a judgmental heart towards each other? with a condemning attitude towards each other. The, the reality is, is that I need your help. And, and you need other people's help. That we need to invite people into our lives. That they could help us to follow Christ, as Scripture tells us, over and over again. So when Jesus says don't judge, He's not saying don't tell someone the truth. Or don't point out their sin. But when you do, don't do it with a judgmental heart. You may have to walk up to a brother and say, brother, I, I love you, but I've seen this in your life and I'm concerned about this. Can, can we work on this together? How can I help you in this? We tell the truth to each other. And unfortunately, the vast majority of Christians don't have relationships like that. We don't have people in our lives. We're not open enough with people that they could come into our lives and do what the Bible tells us in Hebrews 3 and verse 13. Exhort one another daily as long as it is called today, lest you be carried away by the deceitfulness of sin. Or Hebrews 10, for that matter, let us consider each other, how we might stir one another up towards good uh, godliness and good deeds. We don't have those relationships because so we don't open up. We don't open up for two reasons, I think. One, because we're not poor in spirit. We have invested in creating a persona and we we're, and we're, uh, want to make sure that everybody thinks we're this way when we're really not. And we're arrogant and we don't want to knock that persona down. The other reason we don't open up to people is that because people are judgmental and we're afraid they're going to hurt us. And this is why I think Jesus' teaching is so important, that we're not to be judgmental. I wonder, are, are you judgmental? Are you, do you have a condemning heart? One way to know is, is when people sin against you, is your reaction anger or sadness? How do you respond to people when they sin against you? Is your default attitude, how dare they? Or is your default attitude, you know, I love them. And if it wasn't for the gospel, if it wasn't for Christ's work in my life, I would be no better than them. And the only difference is that I'm not more righteous, but God has done in me. And therefore, I don't stand in this judgmental heart towards them. I'm actually sad for them, because they have not received what I have received. You see, the gospel changes our heart. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great German ethicist, who said there are three stages in Christian maturity. The first stage is that we are disgusted at everyone else's sin. We're totally aware of it. We know the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites, and, and we, we know about everyone and, and what they're doing, and we're very uh, appalled by it. And uh, there are many people, by the way, who are, he calls this the spiritual infants. And there are, you know, there are many people who are you know, following Christ for 40 years and still may be in spiritual diapers in this matter. There are many people sitting in church that are very disgusted in everybody else's sin. But Bonhoeffer says, once you begin to understand the gospel, you're going to grow. And the second stage of Christian maturity is that you become more disgusted at your own sin than you do everybody else's sin. Right? You're more aware of your own hypocrisy and bothered by it than you are of everyone else's. Paul seemed to understand this because he would constantly write, you know, I'm the least of the apostles, don't even deserve to be called an apostle, or Christ Jesus came to die for sinners of whom I am the chief, right? I am the chief of sinners. He began to truly understand his own uh, rebellion and and was disgusted at it. All you have to do is read Romans 7, for instance, to see his heart. Well, once you become more disgusted with your own sin than anybody else's sin, you uh, uh, inevitably become more amazed at the grace in which you have received. You become affloored by the mercy which God has given you. And you find such delight in the mercy that is now covering the sin that bothers you so much that you can't help but want to extend it to other people. You want them to have that grace. You want to be gracious and merciful towards them. You see, the, the antidote to this judgmental heart is the gospel. Do you understand who you are in Christ? Do you cherish it? That will change you. So I wonder, do you get more angry at your sin or your spouse's? What's going on in your heart? Do you understand the gospel? Jesus says, judge not. He goes on and says, condemn not. You see that there in verse 37. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. He's going to explain that you get the same standard you give. If you go around condemning, you will be condemned. The reason why is if you have a condemning heart, Jesus, uh, I believe, is teaching us that you don't, you haven't received the gospel. Because how can you, uh, how can you rejoice that you're not condemned by God and yet go around condemning others? Paul says in Romans 2 and verse 1 in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He then says, well, first of all, judge not and then condemn not and then forgive. You know, see that at the end of verse 37, forgive and you will be forgiven. See, judgmental people are quick to condemn and very slow to forgive. In fact, the the more judgmental you are, the more offended you are at the smallest offense. The smallest offense becomes the worst sin. I don't know if you know people like this. I know families that because someone snubbed somebody else, some slight disregard of them, they haven't spoken to each other in a decade. Right, Because they have this judgmental heart and the smallest things begin to break them apart. And the judgmental people are slow to forgive and quick to criticize. Jesus says we ought to be the exact opposite. We ought to forgive. Now I want you to be be clear here. Forgiving does not mean approving. When you forgive someone, you're not approving what they've done. You're not saying I'm okay with what you have done to me. That's not forgiveness. It's not even close. In fact, forgiveness really says two things. You know what you have to do in order to forgive? You have to judge, don't you? If you have to forgive something, you have to judge that something was done wrong. So you have to render a a judgment. You have to say, that was wrong. All forgiveness requires evaluation, discernment, judgment. And so when you forgive someone, you begin by saying, that was wrong. And then what you do in response to that is you don't condemn. Right? You say I I I, I choose even what you done is wrong to me. I choose to forgive you. So forgiveness, therefore, is not denying what's been done. We we like to do this and we say things like, "Oh, I didn't even know what happened." When you when you do know, but you but you say, "Oh, I didn't even know it." Right? But you know it. That's not forgiving. That's denying. Forgiveness isn't even diminishing, which is what we like to do. Oh, it was no big deal. Right? Oh, no one's perfect. When I mean, it was a big deal to you. But you're just trying to let them off the hook by saying by diminishing the the wrong that they have done against you. That is not forgiveness. That's diminishment. Forgiveness is saying it was a big deal. So big that Jesus Christ died for it. And He has chosen to forgive you, my brother. And so do I. That's forgiveness. It costs something. Christ says we are to forgive. And you notice he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. In other words, there's a danger if you withhold forgiveness. Because once again, it's just the reverse of this point in condemnation. It, it, we can't say Jesus has pardoned me and Jesus has given me mercy. But I'm not going to give it to other people. See, the mercy that you receive from Jesus will change you. It will transform you. You, 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 you should. The way that you, what you have received from Christ should impact how you treat each other. It should impact how we speak to each other. That we, we who receive God's mercy must therefore be willing to give mercy to others and forgiveness to others. It's not to say we don't struggle with this. I don't want to minimize the damage that people have done in your life. It's hard to do this. You want to know where you find strength. You have to go to the cross. You have to run to the cross. And what do you see on the cross? You see your sin, don't you? You see what the sin, your sin, has cost God. And there upon the cross you see your sin and then the the overwhelming flow of mercy and love and forgiveness that has been washed upon you at an infinite cost to God. And then you walk away with strength to forgive others because of what God has done for you. Or as Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, once said, a man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. Or I like the conversation between General Oglethorpe and John Wesley. Where General Ogilvie said to Wesley, "I never forgive, and I never forget." Wesley responded, "Then, sir, I hope you never sin. If you don't forgive God, if God you haven't God, forgiveness will capture your heart, and you will be forgiven to others." And so I wondered, do, do you need so- to forgive someone? Is there someone in your life that you need to take the mercy in which you have received from God and extend it to them? Brothers, hear the word of Christ. Sisters, hear the word of our Lord. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. He goes on in verse 38 and says, give. Give, and it will be given to you. Give forgiveness. Give your life. Give your time. Give your money. Be a generous person. Give generously. Judgmental people don't give anything except judgment, except condemnation we are to be giving people. God is a giver. For God so loved the world, he what? Gave. He gave his son. And we are to give. We are to do likewise. And, and Jesus even incentivizes this giving. Do you see this here in verse 38? He motivates us by telling us the blessing that will come upon those who give. Good measure, he says, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. A full measure given by God to you. I generally don't go grocery shopping. Um. <laughs> that probably tells you why. Um. My, my children love it when I go grocery shopping. My wife doesn't care for it so much. I'm a sucker for whatever's at the end of the aisle. Um. And, and so, typically, I don't go grocery shopping, but uh, when my wife was pregnant, which was for about 10 years, um, <laughs> uh, I, I did quite a bit of grocery shopping. And my, my favorite aisle in the, in the grocery, I still am kind of amazed by this. There is, I don't know if you've been, but there is a whole aisle of chips. I mean, it's like, tw- you know, 5% of the store is dedicated to, to salty goodness. And you got Cheetos and Fritos and Doritos and Tostitos, and it's just wonderful. And I, I love the chip aisle. And, and sometimes you get bags of chips that are the size of your small children, and it, it's, it's great. But then you open the bag, right, and there's like a handful of chips in the bottom. And I'm, I am still am perplexed. Why in the world are the bags so big if, if they're just a quarter filled with chips? Well, Jesus actually is referring to something similar here. He, he's referring to some, what happens in the marketplace when you go to the grocery store that day. And what you do is if you want to buy some grain, you get a bucket and you sit down and you pull out your robe and then you put your bucket on top of your robe. And a a guy comes and he pours grain into the bucket. But what you do when you want to buy a bucket full of grain, once he pours it in, you press it down. And then after you press it down, you shake it together to get all those those air pockets out. And then you told them to pour more into the bucket until it flows over into your lap. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap. Right? I want to go to the clerk at the grocery store and say there's chips missing. In I want it pressed down and shaken together, right? I want it overflowing. But this is what Jesus says. He says, Listen, I want you to hear me. If you give, I will return blessing to you. Not just a little. But overflowing. For with the measure you use, God will measure back to you. Now we need to be at this point very careful, because this is not what is called the prosperity gospel. Because there are many heretics, and I would use a stronger term if I could think of one. And they are on your television and they are invading this world and they are saying, Listen, if you give me ten bucks, God will return and give you a thousand. And they often have diamond pinky rings and sit on big thrones and drive fancy cars. And they say, if you're just faithful, God is going to return and bless you. And what they are doing is they are turning God into this cosmic pinata and giving is the stick by which you hit him. And the more you give, the more he pays out. And It may not be money, maybe health or whatever, some blessing. But we're turning God into the one who gives us our idols. It's not what Jesus is speaking of. This is much better understood as generosity theology, not prosperity theology, but generosity theology that God gives to us, not simply so that we can have, but that we can give to others, that, that we can be a conduit of God's grace. You know how God blesses you. It's typically God does not bless you by just floating something down from heaven to you. He brings someone into your life. And he uses them to bless you, whether it's a word of encouragement or whether it's financial support or whatever it might be that God is going to use people to bring blessings. He doesn't simply give to you. He gives through you. And he, I believe, evaluates how we steward our life and steward our resources to determine whether we're faithful or not. And if we are proved to be faithful, he says, well, here's a faithful steward. I'm going to give him more, give her more, because I know that she's not going to hoard it for herself, but she's going to be a conduit of grace into other people's lives. And what happens is sometimes people say, well, if God gives me X amount, maybe even money, then I'll start giving. But I think God looks at you and says, wait a second, I've already given to you. And you're not giving any of it to anyone. You're not proving yourself faithful. Why should I give you more? Friends, I tell you, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The the giver will receive an abundance from God in order that they might continue to be a blessing to others in this life, I believe, and the life to come. And so, at at this point, I I, I do want to, um, I don't talk about money often, but I I just, I want to thank you for your giving. we're halfway through our financial year, and we're just shy. But I think we're around 96% of our budget, and we're doing pretty well. And I know some of you and many of you give very generously to this church and sacrifice. And, of course, I don't know what a single person gives, but I know there are givers here. And so thank you for your faithful support of this ministry. I hope even when Jeff being up here, you see what we do as a church. Perhaps you're new here. You should know that 20 percent, 21% of what we take in as a church we send to ministries outside these walls. So whenever you give to this church, notice that the large portion of that goes to support people like Jeff or Mike Witt, who is here, or we have about a dozen people in South Dakota right now and and they're there many of them are there because you have given faithfully to this church and we're able to help them offset their costs so that they might go and there are other exciting opportunities uh, opening up to us there's a man who wants to, in ghana as we uh, engage ghana who wants to go back to his muslim village and start a church and he's asked us can can hamilton baptist church come alongside and support that and there's exciting ministries and opportunities that we want to be engaged in as a church because you faithfully give in fact uh you should know and most of you know this that as a church we don't save our money. Well we do we do save. We save 2 months of our budget expenses. But anything that exceeds 2 months of our 2 months budget expenses, we set aside and it goes to mission work. It doesn't go back to us. We send it out these walls to the world that the world may know that Christ is king and he's come to save. And so thank you for your faithful giving. If you don't give to this church, I would just encourage you to look at the words of Jesus. Give, he says. You know what that means in the Greek? Give. Um, We are to be not judgmental, not condemning, but forgiving and giving people. Secondly, and quickly, how can we judge leaders? Verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And so, I don't know if you ever play follow the leader, um, I used to play that with my brothers. You know, you close your eyes and you put your hands on their shoulders. That never went well for me. I learned quickly not to do that anymore. Right? That's just the way my family worked. But, um, you ever play, you probably never played follow leader with someone who's blind, right? Because that, it's not going to end well for you. You're both going to end up in a pit. Jesus says you're going to end up in the street, if you will. And, and, and Jesus is warning us. He applies it in verse 40. It says a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. He says that, that if you're, you need to be aware who you're following. You need to be well aware who you're letting influence your life. He says, everyone has people who influence them and teach them. I have my teachers. I have my pastors, if you will, that pour into me and and point me to God. And and everyone does. And we need to beware who we're listening to and who we're reading and who we're allowing to to speak into us. Specifically, the Pharisees were very dangerous. They wanted to lead and teach and guide. And yet Jesus kept calling them over and over blind guides. And if you follow them, you're going to become like them, he says. You're going to become self-righteous or judgmental in this case. So we should beware of false teachers. And as I mentioned, the Bible warns us over and over again. 2 Corinthians, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. Um, but men, as men of sincerity, he says, we're not trying to make money. We are just want to preach God's word. Or Second Peter, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Or even First Timothy chapter 6, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is puffed up and conceited and understands nothing. And we could go on and on and on. There's warning after warning after warning. And by the way, these are all people in the church. These aren't people outside the church that the New Testament's warning us of. It's people who are inside the church who seem to love God. And I trust there will be kernels of truth. But we need to be aware of them. Truth matters. And Paul would write to Timothy, the pastor in the church of Ephesus, saying, Guard your doctrine closely because it will save you and those around you. And Beware, my brothers and sisters, of who you allow to speak into your life. Let me just give you one example there was a book that's been selling for the last 10 years that is a christian book at least purportedly and it's sold over a million copies perhaps you've read it let me just read you a, a passage from it he says god is a person who takes immense risks god did not make adam and eve to obey him he took a risk a staggering risk with staggering consequences he let others into his story and lets their choices shape it profoundly It is not the nature of God to limit his risk and cover his bases. God's relationship with us is just that. It's a relationship. And as with every relationship, there's a certain amount of unpredictability and the ever-present likelihood that you'll get hurt. God's willingness to risk is just astounding, far beyond what any of us would do if we were in his position. That sounds very beautiful, doesn't it? I I mean, it makes me warm just reading it. But the problem is it's totally contrary to God's word. You'll find no scripture anywhere in God's word that suggests anything remotely like this relationship that we have with God. That God is on the same level with us. That God is risking. For God to risk, he doesn't know the future. I don't want a God who doesn't know the future. I don't want a God who doesn't know how things are going to turn out. I don't want a God who's an ambulance driver who's just showing up at the scene saying, I could fix this, I could fix this. And see, there's a kernel of truth there. Clearly, God does want a relationship with us. But we need to beware of, of how people take these truths and turn them for their own profit. Especially if they're not using any scripture to back up their truth. We could say much more on this. I, In fact, I have planned to say much more on this, but for time's sake, I just leave you with, with these cautions. Beware of blind guides. They will lead into great trouble. Lastly, I would like us to uh, realize the Lord s- teaches us how to judge yourselves. How to judge yourself. Look in verse 41, another very famous passage. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not, do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You see, I think what Jesus is saying is, is beware of yourself. You, you may be the blind guide, right? You, you may not be able to see. And it's not that you can't see, but you can't see as clearly as you think. You notice he says that you, you, you think you can see so clearly to see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't even notice the log that is in your own somehow you missed it and by the way don't think two by four when you think log this is a technical term for the load bearing beam in a house think think 40 foot long think telephone pole in your own eye so Jesus of course is being intentionally absurd. He said, you can see the little tiny speck of sawdust, but you can't see this, this beam, this tree in your own eye. You're blind to your own issues. As you see in verse 42, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that out, take out the speck that is in your eye. When you do not see the log that is in your own eye, right? You're blind to your problems. You can't see the log in your eye. In fact, you notice he goes on and calls them hypocrites. Now, what does this have to do with hypocrisy? Because we think a hypocrite is, is someone who pretends to be something that he's actually not. And of course that is. But one way we could be a hypocrite is that we can divert attention from ourselves and, and focus on other people. Focus upon their faults so we don't have to deal with our own. And we actually become so good at this, evidently, what Jesus is teaching, that that we fool ourselves. Right? We don't even see who we are. We not only pull the wool over each other's eyes, we pull the wool over our own eyes. And Jesus calls that hypocrisy. When you're so focused on everybody else's sin that you don't even recognize your own, you're fooling yourself. As one has said, our heart is into image management. Right? We don't want to see our flaws. And we prevent ourselves from doing so by looking at everyone else's flaws. We're blind to our problems. And even if we see our problems, even if we admit to our problems, we admit we, our problems are always the speck, right? We always have the speck. Everybody else has the log. Right? If, if, if I'm late for an appointment, I'm thinking, well, you're just going to have to understand I'm a busy man. Right? But if you're late, I'm thinking, well, how unconsidered are they? Where are they? Right? Or if I'm in a hurry, I'm going to ride someone's tail a little bit to try to speed them up. I mean, They're just going to have to know that, that I need to get someplace. But if someone's riding my tail, I'm thinking, what, what are you guys doing? What, you're putting me in danger. Right, it's always my spec and, and everybody else's log, okay, even in, in counseling situations. Uh, nine out of ten times, in, in which I have the privilege to counsel uh, people in relationships, I, I'm aware that the first issue we need to deal with is that it's far more likely that everyone coming to this counseling meeting is interested in me changing the other person's behavior. Right? And very rarely does someone come to a counseling in a relationship situation say, "I need help." It's always they need help. And that's what our heart is like. And so Jesus, I think, helps us. He gives us a solution. He says, before you worry about other people's sin, take care of your own issues. Judge yourself first. Be more concerned with the changes that you need to make. Notice the log that is in your eye. Take it out, he says, before you do anything else. And once you do, you can help them. You see the end of verse 42? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is a speck Take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The reality is they want the speck out, don't they? No one wants anything in their eye. We were, uh, this uh, Friday, we were painting a uh, fence, a picket fence that we installed, and and a lager got a gnat in her eye. And she didn't keep painting the fence. She walked right over to me and says, I need help. I have a gnat in my eye. Will you take it out? She couldn't keep painting the fence with a gnat in her eye. Right? You get something in your eye, the world stops. In fact, Paul Brand, uh, the the great uh, Christian doctor who wrote Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, talked about the sensitivity of the parts of our body. He says the sole of the foot takes 215 milligrams of pressure per square millimeter before you feel anything. Now, that means nothing to you, but just compare it to the back of the forearm. If it's the sole of the foot, 215 milligrams of pressure, the back of the forearm, 33 milligrams of pressure before you feel anything. The back of the hand, 12 milligrams of pressure. The fingertip, three milligrams of pressure. The lip, two milligrams of pressure. And you start feeling something. But what about the eye? He writes, all nerves seem sluggish compared to those in the cornea of the eye. Transparent, deprived of blood, and thus incredibly vulnerable. The cornea fires off a response if just two tenths tenths of a milligram of pressure is applied. A stray eyelash can make a baseball pitcher stop the game. He can concentrate on nothing else. In contrast, an eyelash on his forearm would go unnoticed. In other words, the speck needs to be removed. People want help to get it out. They want people to come, help me with the speck in my eye. But who do they want to help them? Well, they want someone who's gentle. right? They don't want you to jab your thumb in there. They want you to be gentle with them. And this is not only true of something in your eye, it's true of sin, isn't it? If you have sin and you want help to overcome it, you you want help to grow in your love for Christ, you want this procedure done in your life, who do you want to help you? Someone who's gentle. In fact, in Galatians 6, it says, If anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now the question is, who's going to be gentle? I'll tell you who's going to be gentle. Someone who had a log in their eye. And once that log is removed, they can come to you and say, listen, I know the pain you're going through. I just had a tree in my eye. Right? And and so I, I understand. But I could help. Right? Rather than being self righteous, you're humble. Rather than being judgmental, you're merciful. Rather than being insensitive, you're understanding. So you want to help someone first take the log out of your own eye. Which raises the question what's the log? Because I think sometimes we read this and we think, well, the speck must be a small sin and the log's a really big sin, right? So the speck, maybe someone's gossiping, you know, small, and and the log's murdering. And so what Jesus is saying, stop murdering before you help someone stop gossiping, which of course is good advice, but I don't think that's what he's teaching, right? I don't think the log is a big sin at all. I think the log is simply that you're a sinner. I think the log is simply saying that there's something wrong with you. The log is saying you have a corrupt and fallen nature. The log is saying you cannot save yourself. Most can't see that, right? You need to realize that. Most in the world can't see the log. They can't see that they are not good enough to save themselves. They'll tell you, no, I'm a good person. and My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And I've lived a good and noble life. And God certainly will accept me. And they don't see the log. They're blind to it. Just as Jesus says they will be. But he says, you have to come to grips with the log. This is, remember his tussle with the Pharisees when he was at Levi's uh, party and all these sinners were there and they say, why are you eating with sinners, right? What could they not see? The log. Jesus, or as Jesus put it, you can't realize, you don't realize you're sick. You have to realize you're sick before I can help you. You have to realize there's a log in your eye and first come to grips with who you are and remove that log, which means to declare, I'm a sinner. I'm selfish and I'm scared and I'm self-focused and self-righteous and I need to take this thing out of my life. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel removes that from us. It, It removes that 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 disease from us, making us gentle, making us humble as we realize who we were before God did anything in our life. And it's out of that humility, that gentleness that we come and help each other remove the speck from each other's eye. The gospel makes you humble enough to do this. But you know what else you need to take something out of someone's eye? You not only need humility, you need confidence. Don't you? It's kind of scary to put your finger in there. I, I've, I have, we have, I've never cut my baby's fingernails. Never. Not, not even a single time. I'm, t- I'm afraid to. They're, they're tiny and they move their hands and I'm afraid I'm going to do some. So Legger every time she cut the fingernails, I don't have the confidence. Right? You need confidence to take a speck out of someone's eye. So how are you going to confront someone over sin? How are you going to help them? Well, you have to be gentle and not self-righteous, right? But you have to be confident, not afraid. How do you get that gentleness? Well, through the gospel. The gospel teaches you that you are more sinful than you ever imagined. You are more bad than you ever feared. But how do you get the confidence? Through the gospel, because the gospel not only tells you you're more sinful than you ever dared fear, but you are more loved. Than you ever hoped. That's where you'll find the confidence. It's only in the cross. Where you are both humbled. And assured. You are both made uh, uh, gentle. And confident. You have to go through the cross. This is what Jesus is teaching us. The gospel will do this. You have to first take that log out of your In fact Jesus will take that log out. You know what he'll do with that log? You know what he'll do with your sinfulness? He'll be nailed to it. He'll die because of it. It's not because you're good, precisely because you are the opposite, because you're bad. Christ has come to die to bear a punishment for your sinfulness. And that if you understand who he is and what he has done and bow your knee to him as your king, he said, I'll forgive all your sin, I'll pay the price. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not if you're a good person, a righteous person, a godly person. It's if you yield your life to Jesus, he will forgive you. My sin once condemned me. And now I say with total confidence and great humility in my heart, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. You want to celebrate that you want to rejoice in the fact that you and i brothers and sisters are not condemned by god let's do so through this meal that is before us as a reminder of our lord and the bible tells us that we should examine ourselves before we come to it and so i do as is our custom want to give you an opportunity to pray silently before him if you're visiting with us here today and you're not a christian we would um politely ask you not to participate in this meal as it's passed by, that you would just um, discreetly pass the, the plates on. We do this not to be rude, but we do this out of obedience to our God who has told us that this meal is only for those who have given their life to Christ. It's not for perfect people, clearly not. It's for people who understand they are not perfect and understand they are sinful and have therefore received the mercy in which God gives through faith in Jesus Christ. And so let us pray, asking God to search our hearts as we prepare for this time. Our Father, you have now prepared a feast for us. And we confess to you once and again that we are unworthy to sit down as your guests. And so we come wholly resting in the merits of Jesus. We come clothed only in his righteousness. And when we gaze upon these emblems as we hold them in our hands and are reminded of our Savior's death, May we hear him speak to us through the spirit that I have given my life up for you. That I may take away your sin and blot out your guilt, make you clean and set you free. I have taken your condemnation that you might find your delight in me. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.